Good morning. Um, for those who might be new, my name's Kevin Twitt. I'm uh, filling in, helping out preach uh, most weeks uh, while City Church continues to search for a pastor. Um, do pray for that process as well. Uh, I know probably you are, but um, my friend Kevin Teasley is actually going to preach here next week. Um, Kevin did RUF. He started the RUF at Tennessee Tech over in Cookville and then did RUF for, gosh, probably 15 20 years all total. Uh, he started the work over at Wake Forest as well. So um, that's going to be a joy to have him fill in, and then I'll be back the week after that. So we, as Aaron said, we have been looking at this topic of who is the real Jesus. And, um, you know, one of the ways to figure out what somebody really cares about is to ask what makes them mad. You know, there's a lot of things that people throw around, ideas about the early church believed this or Maybe we can't really believe that what the Bible says is what the early church believed. Maybe they believed this. or There's all these different ideas. I think, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm really grateful for the book of Galatians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some people um, in an area, actually, of modern France is where uh, the Galatians were. And it's a really angry letter. And you might think maybe your idea of Christianity is that people should never get mad about things. Um, that's actually not the truth at all. Um, but, but it's really helpful to see what pe makes people mad. And in that case, in the letter to the Galatians, what makes Paul really mad is that some false teachers have come in to these people who've only recently become Christians, have recently come to understand the gospel, and these false teachers come in and really bring a real distortion. A distortion not just in their ideas about God, but their idea even of how you can have a relationship with God. And it's actually having a devastating effect on the church. And Paul says you know, who's bewitched you, you're now biting and devouring one another. And I, I think what's so helpful about that letter is, what is it that makes Paul mad is something that the early church thought was absolutely vital to understand. There are some things worth getting a little ticked off about. And believe it or not, Jesus gets ticked off sometimes. It's actually one of the ways that you can figure out what he really cares about. That's what we're going to look at today. This chapter, John chapter 3, is fascinating. As Aaron mentioned, John 3.16, probably the most known Bible verse, for God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son, right? Almost anybody that knows anything about Christianity has probably heard that verse, or they've at least seen the sign like at a football game in the end zone, and maybe they've looked it up. I don't know. Um, but what's the context for that? It actually comes out of an argument that Jesus has with this guy, Nicodemus. And I want you to notice as we read, Jesus is the one who picks a fight with this guy. And maybe that's not the way you think of Jesus. But if Jesus actually cares about anything, it's worth getting ticked off about. As we look at this passage, we're going to come to understand what does Jesus really care about? That's, that's what we have this opportunity to see as we look at this story in John chapter 3. So if you have the little bulletin or it'll be up here uh, on the screen as well, we're going to read this story from John chapter 3. This is the word of God. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let me pray and then we will dig into this story. Lord, we do thank you that Jesus cares enough to pick fights. Not just with Nicodemus, but even with us. Pray, Lord, that we wouldn't run away, but we'd dig in. Help us to do that even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is really a story, not just about salvation, though they have this debate about what does it mean to be born again. But if you, if you notice, if you read more carefully, you realize that actually most of the discussion is about how do you know what you know. Philosophers have a name for this. They call this epistemology. How do you know what you know? As a matter of fact, all religious debates and discussions center around this question of epistemology. How do we know what we know? What's the authority for what we actually believe? It's always central. It's not always noticed or talked about. But the question of how do you know what you know, is central to this story. And it's actually central to coming to understand the real Jesus. You see, Nicodemus has certain preconceived ideas. And Jesus doesn't just say, well, let's look at the Bible. He also challenges 
the basis upon which Nicodemus has these ideas. There's a helpful idea that Tim Keller has talked about, pastor up in New York City. He talks about defeater beliefs. I don't know if you've ever heard of this idea of defeater beliefs. Years ago, I actually did a retreat for City Church and talked about defeater beliefs. Uh, but you have to go way back, like Virginia and some, some of the, the old timers, to remember that. It's a really helpful concept. And, and here's, here's what a defeater belief is. A defeater belief is a belief that you hold that if it's true, other truth claims are not even worth considering or thinking about. I'll give you an example. If I said to you, you know, this morning I woke up, made my coffee, I looked out in my backyard, and I saw a fire-breathing dragon. There's not anybody here who's going to ask me, are you sure? I mean, was there scorched grass? Um, what color was it? How big was it? Where do you think it came from? Nobody's going to ask questions about my truth claim because you don't believe that fire-breathing dragons exist. That's an, an example of a defeater belief. You know, what's fascinating is every culture has them, but they actually sometimes contradict each other from culture to culture. When we come to understanding what the Bible is teaching, every one of us has certain defeater beliefs. Sometimes they're the kinds of things that it's like, I don't care if Jesus lived and died and raised from the dead, because if he's going to make me like those Christians I know, I'm not even interested. So sometimes the de defeater beliefs are intellectual, Sometimes they're more ethical. Like, I don't want to be that kind of person no matter what happened with Jesus. It's important to understand these. And I think, actually, the story of Nicodemus, because the story of Nicodemus goes on from John chapter 3, as we're going to see when we go through this, you begin to see Nicodemus's defeater beliefs begin to be dealt with. And here's the key thing. The most important thing in dealing with defeater beliefs and looking at this question of epistemology, how do you know what you know, is can you take a step back and actually examine what seems like common sense to you? That's really the most important first step, is to begin to actually look at what seems common sense and what doesn't even seem like you need to look at it. So many of the barriers that keep us from understanding the truth are these common sense things that we never think about. You see it with Nicodemus, right? He comes to Jesus, I hope you notice this, in a posture of respect. Now John, the writer of this gospel, is, 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 uh, says this interesting thing. He says that Nicodemus comes at night. Now John loves double entendre. I believe that, G that Nicodemus really did come at night. Um, from some Jewish writings of the time, it seems that rabbis often would have their discussions about theology at night. Okay? So there may be th that actually happened, and that's why he did this. But I think John also means to tell us that Nicodemus is in a night blind spiritually. And, and what's amazing about that is he should know better. As Jesus tells him as he gets into this, you are the teacher of Israel. I know some translations say you are a teacher in Israel. But in the Greek, actually the definite article is there. So Jesus says, like, you're the top dog. You're the teacher in Israel, and you don't understand what I'm talking about? That's a problem, <laughs> because a lot of people are listening to you. And you don't even know what you're talking about. Nicodemus comes respectfully. But notice, 
he has, a, he has certain preconceived ideas. He says, we know that you have come from God. Why? Well, because you teach these things. You're a good teacher. And you even do miracles, right? So Nicodemus has an idea of who Jesus can be, but his imagination is not big enough. He's limiting the possibilities to what he can imagine. And the idea that God would come down in human flesh is not even something he can begin to imagine. But rather than pursuing Jesus and saying, who are you really? He makes an assumption about who he can be and who he can't be. And so what Jesus is trying to get at is he's trying to challenge not just what Nicodemus says, but the whole basis upon which Nicodemus is depending for what he believes. And to really come to Jesus as a disciple, as a follower, as one who believes him, requires this kind of revolution. It doesn't mean fitting Jesus in to pre-existing categories. It means who is he really, and maybe my categories need to change. Right? Nicodemus comes respectfully, but what does Jesus do? He picks a fight. Like, look at this. Verse 3. Jesus replies, and, and it's fascinating, replies. Nicodemus basically says, we know that, you know, you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you very much. You know, it's good to meet you too. You know, I've heard a lot about you. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He just says, truly, truly, I love the old King James, truly, truly, or he says, I swear, is what he's saying, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And if you're Nicodemus, you might be like, who's talking about the, the kingdom of God? And why are you like already like throwing down the gauntlet? Like, how can we even have a conversation if you like throw down the gauntlet like that? But again, I think this is a way to begin to understand what really matters to Jesus. It doesn't matter that you just respect him as a good teacher. Jesus is concerned about the kingdom of God and about people being brought into it. It's not enough that you just like him and respect him. It's not even enough if you think he comes from God. Jesus drives right to a different point. One that Nicodemus doesn't care about, isn't even asking about. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus again comes back on, whoa, 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 hold on, that doesn't make any sense. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus says again, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And look at verse 7. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And you might be like, what? Really? You must not be surprised. That means Jesus expects him to know what Jesus is talking about. And as you go down, you see in verse 10, Jesus doesn't let that go. He says, again, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. Well, why should Nicodemus understand these things? Well, because the idea that you must be born again is not some brand new idea that Jesus made up. It actually is an Old Testament idea. And it's a really important Old Testament idea because 
If you're somebody who believes that as long as I'm a good person and I keep the rules, which is what Nicodemus and his friends think, well, then you don't really care about being born again. But when you realize, when you realize that you need a new nature, not just some instruction, well, then being born again is actually a really important thing. And this is actually what God tells the prophet Ezekiel. If you want an Old Testament reference for what Jesus is talking about, that's where it is. In Ezekiel, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, go out and look at this valley of dry bones. Like these are bones left over from a battle that are bleached white, bone dry, as we say. And Ezekiel, God says, go preach to the bones. And, and Ezekiel's like, what? What's the point of that? Just do it. And the bones actually, I mean, this is kind of a good Halloween text, I guess, right? The bones begin to like take flesh and sinews and they come together and they become animated. It's a picture actually of what salvation is. Dead people being made alive. And Jesus says, you need to understand this. If you don't understand this, how are all the rest of Israel to understand what I'm about? No wonder they think if they just keep the laws and try to be good, everything will be fine. But everything's not fine because they need so much more than a good teacher come from God. And as Jesus drives here through this story, he says that. He, he mentions another point, which is really fascinating. He brings up a passage from the book of Numbers. And this is interesting because this is a story about Moses. And you might be like, well, where is that? It's in verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So again, Jesus is saying, the only way that people can come to salvation is to look at the Son of Man lifted up. Now, this is a really bizarre story, I'll tell you. It's in Numbers chapter 21. This is when Israel is wandering around in the desert, and at one point, actually at a lot of points, but at this particular point, Numbers 21, Israel begins to murmur against Moses and against God. Unless you think murmuring is not really a big deal, um, in, in the little letter of Jude, it's actually listed first among the lists of the sins that God is coming to judge when he comes back again. Why? Because murmuring is not just complaining. Murmuring is charging God with wanting to destroy you. It, it's sitting in judgment on God. This is what C.S. Lewis called putting God in the dock. Anybody ever read that essay, that book? The dock in the English court system is where the defendant sits. Maybe you've seen it if you watch Poldark or you watch some of these shows, you know, you see the defendant sitting in the dock, dock right? And, and what C.S. Lewis says is for most, all of human history, up until the 20th century, mankind always approached God thinking that we were on trial. But in the 20th century, people have kind of done a switch and they believe it's God who has to answer to us for what he's done. Well, here's this story about murmuring, about basically putting God on trial. 
and saying, you've not measured up. You've not done well. You brought us out into the desert to kill us. So you know what God does? He sends poisonous snakes, and they bite the people, and some of them die. I mean, again, this is like a wild story, and I don't have time to go totally into it, but Jesus says it's a story about him. So maybe it's worth just spending another minute. What happens in this story is that Moses goes to God. The people are like, Moses, go talk to God. Like, snakes are like killing us. And Moses goes to God, and God says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to make a bronze serpent, so like a, make a, a, a model, like a sculpture, put it on a pole, and set it up high. And whenever someone gets bit, they look at this serpent, and they'll be healed. There's a couple things to note here. The thing they have to look at is the thing that's killing them. To, to come to, for healing, they can't do an end run around their murmuring. They should even think about the serpent connecting to the original sin in the garden where Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness and felt justified in doing what they wanted. Like God is saying, that's still in you, and it needs to be dealt with. And you can't like even look down to protect yourself from the snakes while you're looking up at a pole. You have to look up. You have to look to Jesus alone. And Jesus is saying, that story is about me. Nicodemus, you didn't get it. And you didn't get it because you don't realize how bad the situation is. And that leads us into kind of the last point, which is, what is salvation about anyway? And, and it's, it, you see it here in verse 6. Jesus is explaining, basically, you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, that's impossible. Jesus says, you're right, but you need it anyway. And you might think, well, how is that inviting? Well, you need more than an invitation, friends. You need to be born again. It's something that happens to you. And Jesus explains in verse 6, it's not something that you have the power to do yourself. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Jesus here actually is using a little wordplay because the word for spirit in Hebrew and in Greek is also the word for wind. So he's saying it's the basic nature of salvation. It's not something you do. It's something that comes from God's grace. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. And of course, if you just need some instruction, you don't need supernatural grace. But if verse 19 is true, you need supernatural grace. Look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. People love darkness. We love darkness in so many ways. And Jesus says, I've come as the light of the world, but that's not enough. I need to die. I need to be lifted up. 
You don't just need a message from me. You don't just need some instruction. And Nicodemus is beginning, is beginning to think differently. You know what's fascinating about this story is we don't know what Nicodemus does. Which I think is, is part of the brilliance of John's art in composing his gospel. He, he actually doesn't tell us here in chapter 3 what Nicodemus does. It just sort of, Nicodemus like moves off the stage and you're left wondering. In a way, it asks the same question of us. Jesus comes to us and says, you must be born again. And you might be like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that. But, you know, he says, you have to have it. And you can't wump it up yourself. It comes from the Spirit. It's supernatural. But it involves looking at Jesus, him crucified, lifted up. Well, what happens later in the story, in John chapter 7, it's just this tantalizing little hint. But you see Nicodemus's defeater beliefs beginning to be questioned. So in John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, the ruling class, like all the, the Pharisees are gathering and they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. They actually sent some soldiers to go arrest Jesus and they come back and they're like, yeah, we couldn't do it. And, and the Pharisees are like really ticked at him. And, um, and, and they're like, well, we just, need to, we just need to kill this guy. And Nicodemus says, is it really right to condemn him without listening to what he says? Fascinating. He stands up in this whole group and he just raises the possibility that maybe we've got this wrong and maybe we should listen to him. Do you see the beginning? The beginning, the beginning kernel of faith often is questioning what you assumed about who Jesus is. And by the end of John's gospel, in chapter 19, we all remember who is it that goes and asks for the body of Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, right? And he buries Jesus in his tomb. But John chapter 19 says Nicodemus was with him. At this point now, Nicodemus is willing to identify with Jesus. That's strong. And I love the way John's gospel shows the way faith comes bit by bit. But it begins by Jesus picking a fight and Nicodemus beginning to question everything he thought he understood. It's actually, I think, the way the disciples themselves came to faith. Because they kind of think they understand who Jesus is about. But it's not really until, you know, way into the story when Jesus is finally like, who do you think I am? Who do other people say I am? And who do you think I am? You remember this is at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Peter says, we think you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you are right, Simon. And you remember what he says? Flesh and blood has not revealed to you, to you. If you've come to this understanding, it's not because you figured it out and you were more clever. It's only because my Father has revealed this to you. So when we look at what Jesus is saying here about faith, here's what he's saying. It's supernatural. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, put it this way. Faith is a plant that's not native to the soil of the human heart. And if you find it growing in your heart, somebody must have planted it. I had an old preacher uh, when I was in, in college in Boston. I went to this place 
Park Street Church, and one of the pastors wrote this book called Turtle on a Fence Post. It's an old preacher story. You see a turtle on a fence post, there's one thing you know, didn't get there by itself. Right? If you see somebody who's had their heart transformed, it didn't happen by itself. And it might have even started with getting ticked off by Jesus. <laughs> Listen, if Jesus ticks you off, don't run away. Dig in. Dig in. Why is it making you mad? Why is it making you mad? Jesus loves to pick fights because he loves people. And he loves to break through the preconceived ideas that keep us from coming to him and following him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. But as we're reminded by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, you're not safe. You even pick fights with us. Maybe there's some sitting here today who are kind of mad and wondering what they're going to do with you. Oh, we pray, Lord, that we would not just be ticked off by you, but, Lord, we would be drawn to your beauty, that we would worship you rather than thinking that we can control you. Lord, as we come now to the table, how could we think that we could ever control you or understand fully the depths of your love? Oh God, who would come and die for such as us? As the Apostle Paul reminds us, oh, it's possible that for a good man someone might possibly die, but Jesus demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that humbling reminder that we were not choice but still we were chosen by your grace. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.